Thank you. Well, don't forget about those demo days, of course, coming up this coming Friday. And then we don't want you to forget, obviously, about our, uh, our uh, satur- uh, how, what are we calling it again? Uh, operation saturation. They don't want you to forget about that. That's big. And uh, so if you've got a, a friend or someone that you sit by on Sunday morning that doesn't normally come back at night or doesn't come out soul winning, you might want to just on Sunday morning say, hey, why don't you come on out and you and I will partner up. And then we'll go out on Operation Saturation and pass out some of those door hangers. And we're going to have door hangers this year. It's going to be a little bit different. We're not going to have tracks try to stick them in the door. We'll just have a door hanger. You run up and stick it on the door and, uh, or the screen, whatever it might be. And you just hang it on there. And on the front will be uh, some information about the church. As, and on the back will be a gospel presentation. And uh, we'll try to do, uh, you know, reach as much as we can. Like Brother Hamilton said, 12,000 or more. You know, that'd be awesome. So we really want to do that. And we're going to do that in two hours, basically. So we'll have the first half hour here with our, our Go Rally. We want you to be here for that. You know, we don't want you to wait till 10 to come on in. Everything will be explained in the Go Rally and things. We'll have a very short, uh, short challenge and charge. And then we'll get everybody lined up, ready to go. And boom, out the door we'll go. And for two hours, we're going to go out there and, and like I say, we'll see about those routes. I mean, 100, 100 doors, I was amazed how quickly 100 went last. It was like over, you know, it was, it was amazing. Because when you're used to knocking the doors and then you just go out and pass them out, it's amazing how quickly it goes. So, um, like I said, uh, well, you know, some of you may choose this year after last year, say, man, give me two, I'm ready to go. And run out there and knock them out and uh, be ready to go. We'll be back here around 12 or so, 12.15, we're going to go ahead and have a light lunch. And we're looking forward to that, a time of fellowship and a time just to maybe uh, share war stories with one another about how the dog chased us out of the yard or snipped, you know, snapped at our toes or whatever it might be. I don't know. You know what I'm saying? So we'll have a good time and uh, looking forward to that. All right. Well, um, be thinking now, uh, you know, tent meeting. You know, we do have these again. Again, I'm taking a little bit of time because it's important. But we have our tent meeting uh, brochure or whatever you want to call it, little handout. Make sure you get that out and uh, let people know about it. It's going to be a great, a great opportunity. It's kind of like adult camp, you know what I mean? It's our opportunity all week long to be saturated with the gospel. And, uh, you know, you go to work and all. I know you don't get, at least you can't go, you know, miss work all week. But, but you go to work, you come out, and you, you get a chance every evening, you know. Instead of, let's just be honest, instead of the normal routine in the evenings, you get an opportunity to just focus your mind on the things of God. And it's going to be a great week. And so we're looking forward to that. All right. Well, anyway, let's take our Bibles tonight. Turn over to the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 1. 1 Corinthians chapter 1 this evening. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. We're going to begin reading in verse 26. Chapter 1, verse 26. There in the passage we read, For ye see your calling, brethren, how that not many wise men after the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. But God hath chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. And God hath chosen the weak things of the world to confound the things which are mighty. And base things of the world and things which are despised hath God chosen, yea, and things which are not. To bring to naught things that are. 
Now, I want you to notice this last statement, verse 29. That no flesh should glory in His presence. That no flesh should glory in His presence. We're introduced to a passage tonight that draws a picture of those that Christ chooses or calls into service. From the world's perspective, this particular list, if you will, or element of qualifications, is a very unlikely group. As a matter of fact, they would view this group, those that would be called according to these parameters, as being very unlikely to succeed, very unlikely to produce. When you consider the goal of the gospel to be, uh, that it be spread throughout the entire world, that churches be planted, that lives be transformed and changed, that literally our culture is different for having inserted it, this isn't the crew that you would think God would choose. Or certainly it's not the crew that the world would choose. I can't help but think of that passage over in the book of Acts chapter 4 that describes Peter and John as they are in the midst of the world proclaiming the gospel, preaching the truth. As viewed from the eyes of the lost, it says, Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were unlearned and ignorant men, they marveled. They said, There's nothing about these men that would uh, indicate that they graduated from Harvard. There's nothing about these guys that would somehow indicate or point to the fact that they've been educated. These are ignorant. They're unlearned men. The main reason for the choices that God makes is outlined in verse 29. We already drew attention to it. But I want you to notice one more time. He says that no flesh should glory in His presence. See, there's no place for self in the service of the King. That no flesh should glory in His presence. God chooses a very unlikely lot, and for you and I tonight, let's just be honest, that's a blessing, isn't it? I mean, most, if not all, fit somewhere in this passage. And yet there's no limit to what God can do if we will simply say yes. See, tonight, the choice is yours. The choice is yours. And tonight I just want to share a little message I've entitled, The Choice is Yours. So let's pray. Father, we come to you. And we thank you now for this time that we now have together. I'm asking you, Lord, just to... Fill me with your spirit and enable me, Lord, to be a blessing and a help. I want to be an encouragement to your people tonight. I thank you for the simplicity of your word. I thank you, Father, for just the fact that, Lord, you communicate with us through it. Lord, there's no reason in this world why we deserve to hear from you. Lord, we thank you that your Son lives in us, that we're alive today in Christ Jesus. Thank you that you've provided us the Holy Spirit of God to bring us conviction and to bring us change. 
to remind us of our needs, to empower us and enable us in times of effort. Father, we just desperately ask you, Lord, to be with us tonight. Now, Lord, help us to learn what you'd have for us. May we be different for having come. And Lord, be with every listening ear and may you anoint it. We'll thank you as you do your perfect work in our lives tonight. In Christ's name, amen. <clears throat> Again, I want to note or consider this aspect, the choice is yours. We see these qualifications or we see these who God calls or chooses into service. A very unlikely group. So what I want to do tonight is simply go through the word and just, I guess, note some examples of that. To begin with, I want to look at 1 Samuel chapter 16. A man by the name of David. A man that we're very familiar with more than likely here tonight. And if not, it's probably that you've heard of David and Goliath. But in 1 Samuel chapter 16... We're going to read about a man that God used in a mighty way. That's way back in that Old Testament. 1 Samuel chapter 16. We're going to begin reading in verse 4. And Samuel did that which the Lord spake and came to Bethlehem. The elders of the town trembled at his coming and said, Comest thou peaceably? The man of God showed up. You were a little concerned. You got a little convicted. You're a little worried. Just maybe if we messed up, he's coming to rain some wrath on us. You say, nobody should ever fear the preacher. The sinner ought to. The sinner ought to say, man, I don't know. I feel uncomfortable with that guy around. You know what? If you're a man of God or a woman of God, sinners ought to be uncomfortable with you around. I'm not saying that you ought to be going around indicting people. God does a good job of that. But what I will say is, is that if you are walking in the Spirit, there ought to be a witness. Nonetheless, these say, are you coming peaceably? In verse 5, and he said peaceably, I am come to sacrifice unto the Lord. Sanctify yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. And he sanctified Jesse and his sons and called them to the sacrifice. And it came to pass when they were come that he looked on Eliab and said, Surely the Lord's anointed is before me. But the Lord said unto Samuel, Look not on his countenance or on the height of his stature, because I have refused him. For the Lord seeth not as man seeth, for man looketh on the outward appearance, but the Lord looketh on the heart. Then Jesse called Abinadad and, said unto, and said, uh, made him pass before Samuel, and he said, Neither hath the Lord chosen this. Then Jesse made Shammah to pass by, and he said, Neither hath the Lord chosen this. Again, Jesse made seven of his sons to pass before Samuel. And Samuel said unto Jesse, The Lord hath not chosen these. And Samuel said unto Jesse, Are, there, are here all thy children? He said, There remaineth yet the youngest. Behold, he keepeth the sheep. And Samuel said unto Jesse, Send and fetch him. For we will not sit down till he come hither. You know how it ultimately ends up, don't you? David shows up from caring for the sheep and cleans himself a little bit, makes his way there to Samuel. And Samuel meets with David. He realizes and recognizes immediately that this indeed is the one that God hath chosen. 
We learn a few things, don't we? God doesn't always choose the one at the head of the line. I mean, Eliab was first, and it just seems sometimes, if we're not careful, you know, like, you know how it is, we're always trying to get to the front of the line. We're always trying to get the best spot. We're always trying to make it in front of the ones who are going to make the choice. If I could just get out front. Eliab was first. But God didn't choose the one that was at the head of the line. Also, we learn that God doesn't always choose the one everybody else would. Once again, Eliab steps up to the plate. And I mean to tell you, even Samuel himself was taken by his stature, taken by his demeanor. Said to himself, oh my goodness, I mean, look at this young man. I mean, he is certainly everything that Israel could ever hope for and everything God would ever want. Yet the Bible tells us in 1 Samuel 16, verse 6, it says, And it came to pass when they were come that he looked on Eliab and said, Surely the Lord's anointed is before me. But the Lord said unto Samuel, Look not on his countenance or on the height of his stature, because I have refused him. He said, he may be tall and he may be good looking. He may have all the tools and the necessary abilities, but he does not have my approval. I've refused him. For the Lord seeth not as man seeth. Obviously, there was something in Eliab that God did not want leading his people. By the way, just because you come to church doesn't mean you can lead. Just because you look the part and wear a tie or wear a dress and come in this place and look, put the look on or put the dog on does not mean that in your heart there's not something that God rejects in, in your life. You can have me fooled, you can have these fooled, but you and I, none of us, can fool God. He said, I have refused him. For the Lord seeth not as man seeth, for the Lord looketh on the out, man looketh on the outward appearance, but the Lord looketh on the heart. This verse has nothing at all to do with outward standards. Oh, we don't need those. God doesn't even care about how you look, how you dress, what you act like, how you talk. Who cares about all that stuff? All God cares about is your heart. That's all He looks at. That's not, that's not at all what that verse is teaching. It's amazing to me how we like to run to a verse. Say, see, God looks at the heart and never the outside. Therefore, how dare you impose any kind of leadership standards on us? That doesn't make any sense at all. McDonald's has standards. The airlines have standards. Cedar Point has standards. It's amazing, but the church can't have standards. What is wrong with us? Not only do we learn that God doesn't always choose the one at the head of the line, He doesn't always choose the one everybody else would, but God doesn't always choose the one that catches man's eye. I mean, notice that all these brothers ultimately pass by Samuel. Everyone having an equal opportunity, so to speak, to catch the eye of the, the prophet, to catch the eye of others. And yet in the end, none of them measured up because God did not choose them. If I can only get out there, if I can only send my resume to enough churches, I'll finally get to pastor. If I only tell enough people, 
that I'm looking for a job, then maybe I'll get it. If I can only be, get some more exposure, if I can only preach at the Sword of the Lord conference. Are you kidding me? God doesn't always choose the one that catches man's eye. So what does God choose most often? According to 1 Samuel chapter 16 and this whole situation, it seems that God, God chose the least. It seemed that God chose the forgotten. That God chose the overlooked. I mean, here's David now. He's not even invited. His daddy says, oh, yeah, we got this important uh, uh, meeting we're going to with Samuel the prophet, the great prophet of Israel. And boy, what an honor it is for me and my sons to gather. David, you stay with the sheep. He could have easily hired somebody to care for those sheep. He could have easily asked someone to take care of it. I'm sure he had a number of servants. But instead, he overlooked David. Instead, for some crazy reason, he forgot all about his youngest son out there on that hill taking care of those sheep. For some reason, David was considered the least of his sons. I don't know why. I don't have that answer. But what I know is that God saw it different. For you see your calling, brethren, how that not many wise men after the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. But God had chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. And God had chosen the weak things of the world to confound the things which are mighty. And base things of the world and things which are despised. God hath God chosen, yea, and things which are not to bring to not things that are. That no flesh should glory in his presence. When it was all said and done, David didn't have a leg to stand on. He couldn't say, boy, I was the tallest. Boy, I was the best looking. Boy, I was the one that stood out among the rest. No, you were the forgotten. You were the unlikely. And yet you were the one chosen to be king by God. That ought to encourage you. It certainly encourages me. Number two, I want to look at Moses for a moment. Look at Exodus chapter 3. Exodus chapter 3. Genesis. Exodus. Hey. You just got saved. You didn't know that. Takes time to figure that out. You got to work at it. By the way, you know that you never get, you never become proficient at anything you don't work at? Never get good at anything you don't practice. It, it's amazing that we'll get a job somewhere and we'll say, man, I've got to work at this. I, I've got to really get better. I want to be the best at my job. But for some crazy reason, we're very content to be biblically illiterate. Why is that? I, I'm, not, I'm not trying to be mean. I'm just wondering. I, I really wonder why is that? Why is it that we don't care whether we ever memorize a scripture? Why is it we don't really care if we know the books of the Bible? Why is it we just, whatever? I'm just wondering. I think there might be, as ever many people there are in the room, there may be that many different reasons, I don't know. But I'm just saying, I think we need to consider that. Why is it that I have no real drive, motivation, or ambition to really know, learn, and apply this book like I would anything else in life that matters to me. 
Why is it, young men, that you'll spend hours trying to perfect a video game or a shot in the driveway through a hoop or perfect your pass through a tire? I throw my, the football through a tire at 50 yards. 50 midget yards. I'm talking about... But I'm just saying we've spent all of this time working on things that matter to us. We ought to spend time in this book. Nonetheless, moving on. <clears throat> Moses, Exodus chapter 3, verse 1. <laughs> now Moses kept the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian. He led the flock to the backside of the desert and came to the mountain of God, even to Horeb. <clears throat> The angel of the Lord appeared unto him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. By the way, the angel of the Lord is none other than Jesus Christ manifest in the Old Testament. It's God in flesh. It's God, should I say God, being manifest in that Old Testament. Okay, so we're moving on. He's having a meeting with God now. And the angel of the Lord appeared unto him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. And he looked, and behold, the bush burned with fire, and the bush was not consumed. And Moses said, I will now turn aside and see this great sight, why the bush is not burnt. And when the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called unto him out of the midst of the bush and said, Moses, Moses. And he said, Here am I. Amazing, isn't it? There's Moses. There in the wilderness, the backside of that desert, and he sees this amazing sight, a a burning bush, and it's not being consumed. And then he hears, after he makes a decision to draw nigh to it, he hears his name. Ultimately, we know what transpired, don't we? See, God chooses those, watch this, who have made mistakes. Look if you would in Exodus chapter 2. Go back just a chapter. Exodus chapter 2 verse 11. <clears throat> Remember, Moses has grown up in Egypt here. I mean, he has had the finest foods. He's had the best education. He's, he's been treated, wined and dined, so to speak. He was truly there at Pharaoh's table. I mean to tell you, Moses knew what it was to live high on the hog for the first 40 years of his life. But notice what happens toward the end of that first 40 years. The Bible tells us over here in verse 11, chapter 2, And it came to pass in those days when Moses was grown, that he went out unto the brethren, his brethren and looked on their burdens, and he spied an Egyptian smiting a Hebrew, one of his brethren. Obviously he recognized that he was a Hebrew. And he looked this way and that way, and when he saw that there was no man, he slew the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. <clears throat> You've been there, I've been there. We may not have slew someone, but we looked both ways. Anyone looking? Okay. And that's exactly what he did. And then the Bible goes on to say, verse 13, And when he went out of the, the second day, behold, two men of the Hebrews strove together. And they were fighting, they were at it. And he said to him that did the wrong, Wherefore smitest thou thy fellow? Why are you doing that to him? Don't you understand you're both brothers? Don't you realize you're both Hebrews? 
Verse 15, now when Pharaoh heard this, excuse me, he says, uh, and he said, who made thee a prince and a judge over us? Intendest thou to kill me as thou killedst the Egyptian? Moses, don't you know I read about you on Facebook last night? Don't you realize that, that sister so-and-so, sister Longtongue was talking about what you did? I know you thought no one saw you, but they did. And boy, it's gotten around the camp. Now, if Moses was most like, most like, like most Baptists, he'd have said, well, that just offends me. You just, why don't you shut your mouth and mind your own business? I did that in secret. Nobody was supposed to ever know about it. You're making it a big deal. You gossip, you. You should have never done it. Listen, you do something stupid, pay the price. Quit blaming everybody else. Why is it everybody else's fault that you got caught? You ought to thank God. Moses ought to be grateful he got caught. Because let me tell you something, in the end, that's what caused him, sent him on out of Egypt, that ultimately prepared him for 40 years in the wilderness, to finally when the Lord shows up in his life again, he says yes. He'd have never said yes in Egypt. He'd have never got the opportunity that he now will have. It was the wrong place and the wrong time. It might have been the right person, but it wasn't right at the time or the place. God was preparing him. Notice what it says. And Moses, verse 14, feared and said, Surely this thing is known. Think so? Now when Pharaoh heard this thing, he sought to slay Moses. But Moses fled from the face of Pharaoh and dwelt in the land of Midian, and he sat down by a well. Boy, Moses took too much on himself. Moses thought he had the answer. He tried to help God. Remember what I told you this morning? That it's not what you can do for God. It's what God can do for you. Sometimes we take way too much on ourselves. Moses made a big mistake, didn't he? And yet God chose him. Isn't that great? I mean, how big of a mistake have you made in your life that that, that makes you believe somehow that God could not use you? I want you to know that God used Moses after his big mistake. Not only that, but... Not only does God choose those that have made mistakes, but God chooses those who live in obscurity. And when I'm talking about obscurity, basically, primarily what I'm talking about is, He uses those who are introverts. In Exodus 2.21, the Bible simply says, And Moses was content to dwell with the man, and he gave Moses a poor his daughter. You know what happened for 40 years after he fled from Egypt? He lived in the wilderness, away from others. He kept the man's goods. Raised the man's grandchildren. Took care of a wife. 
I'm talking about a man who had probably the best education in the country. Had the greatest opportunity that could have ever been afforded. But this man chose to flee into obscurity. Nobody knew really all about this man except probably his closest friends and family. He was, he was on the back side of the desert in the wilderness. You know what? There's some people today that live our, their lives like that. Oh, they may not live in the wilderness, but they live like they are. They don't talk to people. They don't interact with others. They always feel shy and backward. Don't think you can hide from God's call. You're just the one He's looking for. Isn't that encouraging? Someone like that says, not really. But the truth is, Moses was that kind of man. He was living in obscurity. God chooses those who have made mistakes. He chooses those who live in obscurity. What else do we learn from Moses? Well, we learn that God chooses those who lack confidence. I want you to notice something over in the book of Exodus chapter 4, verse 1 through 2. Chapter 4, verses 1 through 2. Moses is still having this conversation with God now. He's been to that burning bush. He's taken off his shoes because he's on holy ground. He's listening to the voice of God. He's hearing the call of God. And ultimately, through the course of conversation, and Moses answered and said, But behold, they will not believe me, nor hearken unto my voice. For they will say, The Lord hath not appeared unto thee. And the Lord said unto him, What is that in thine hand? And he said, A rod. Now listen, the bottom line is, is that God's telling you're going to get the opportunity and the privilege... <laughs> To lead my people free. To remove them out of the bondage and enslavement of Pharaoh and the Egyptians. You're going to do that now, Moses. Oh, 40 years earlier, Moses would have jumped all over that. Because he saw himself as quite capable and qualified for the job. But now he doesn't. Now before us stands a very humble man. After living... 40 years on the backside of the desert. After being prepared by God for a great and mighty calling. Now Moses says, Lord, now listen, I hear what you're saying. And I mean, I'm hearing it, but I'm not not feeling it. I mean, they're not going to believe me. They're not going to hearken to me. They're not going to obey me. Who's Moses? I'm nobody. He had no confidence. Not only did he lack confidence in that regard, he says, they won't believe me. But I want you to notice something else. Moses is so concerned at this point that he even complains to God about the fact that, Lord, I I can't speak. Look, if you will, in Exodus 4.10. I don't know if he... Had a speech impediment. I don't know if he stuttered. I don't know if he just lacked so much confidence that he thought his he would trip over his tongue before Pharaoh. I can't say 100%. I know that he was at some pretty powerful schools, that he had experienced some great education. i got to believe that the man could probably articulate himself fairly well. 
But for whatever reason, he doesn't believe that he can stand before Pharaoh and articulate this message properly. He literally has no confidence in his ability to speak. And he says unto the Lord, O my Lord, I am not eloquent, neither heretofore, nor since thou hast spoken unto thy servant. But I am slow of speech and of a slow tongue. I don't know if that means that he was from Texas or Louisiana and had a long draw. Lord, I just don't think I can do it. I don't know if that's what he meant, but I know for sure he had no confidence. Guess what? God chooses those who lack confidence. Do you ever feel like you lack confidence? God's going to call you, brother, to do... Not me. There's no way in the world. You, you would call, call me into the, to the ministry, call me to win souls and to, to, to build men and women in the Lord Jesus Christ to give my life to that effort? Oh, I doubt it. There's so many others that could do it so much better than I. Lack of confidence. I don't have any ability to speak. I couldn't stand in front of people and articulate the gospel message like I ought to or need to in order to be effective in the ministry. No confidence. That's exactly how Moses felt. And yet God chose him. We have all these excuses that we think are original. They're original. You don't understand. Oh, I know you have the original excuse. The only one that God will accept, right? I'm telling you tonight that God says, hey, God's saying real clear tonight, very clearly tonight, for ye see your calling, brethren, how that not many wise men after the flesh, nor many mighty, not many noble are called. But God hath chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. And God hath chosen the weak things of the world to confound the things which are mighty. And base things of the world and things which are despised hath God chosen, yea, and things which are not to bring to not things that are that no flesh should glory in his presence. You fit in there somewhere? I do. I think finally, about Acts chapter 9. Turn there if you would. Let's just look at Paul real quickly before we close. Sometimes Paul seems like an untouchable. He just seems to be out of reach in my mind sometimes. I mean, the level of commitment and dedication this man exhibits is just, at times, uh, it floors me. It boggles my mind. Sadly enough, I feel that way. Sadly enough, maybe some of you do too. The reason I say that is because That is exactly the level that God demands and desires from all of us. Too many times we let ourselves off the hook because we feel like, I'm not like Paul. I'm not like Moses. I'm not like David. I mean, come on, are you you kidding me? we, We just looked at all of these men, or at least the last two, and what we're learning is, is that they fit within God's resume... Of called ones. Look at Paul. Chapter 9, verse 1. 
And Saul, that was his name before he was saved and serving the Lord, yet breathing out threatenings and slaughter against the disciples of the Lord, went unto the high priest, desired of him letters to Damascus, to the synagogues. If he found any of this way, whether they were men or women, he might bring them bound into Jerusalem. I think it's interesting to note just right offhand that this man was ambitious. Hey, they didn't call him, he went to them. He said, hey, you know what? Give me some letters. Give me the authority to drag them into jail. Give me the ability and the opportunity to go ahead and really destroy them and to ruin them and to wreck them. Man, this man was very ambitious. And he was very driven. And he took initiative. Can I tell you today that we, more than anything else, need young men with some ambition, some drive, some initiative, that don't have to be told what to do all the time, but jump on it, get it done without being asked, take initiative and do something and say, I can make this better, will you let me? We live in a generation that just seems that we are content to do as little as possible. Not just for the Lord, I'm talking about in life. I mean, if I got a job working for eight or ten hours, the, is, if I can help it, I'll do as little as possible. As long as I get my paycheck, everything's cool. As long as I pass my reviews, it's all right. But to put any extra energy, any extra effort, to actually take initiative and do something, sweep the floor without being asked at work? Are you kidding? That's not my job description. That's the mentality we live with today. And unfortunately, it has permeated our churches. And it has affected our pulpits. And affected our pews. Notice what we've learned here. Paul's ambitious. He goes on to say, verse 3, And as he journeyed, he came near Damascus, and suddenly there shined round about him a light from heaven. And he fell to the earth and heard a voice saying unto him, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? He said, Who art thou, Lord? The Lord said, I am Jesus, whom thou persecutest. It is hard for thee to kick against the pricks. And he trembling and astonished said, Lord, what wilt thou have me to do? And the Lord said unto him, Arise, and go into the city, and it shall be told thee what thou must do. I get excited on this one. Listen to this one. God chooses the biggest sinners. Oh, I'm not talking about you're saved and you're in gross sin, God's calling. No, I'm saying that God calls those that are the biggest sinners in their eyes. You know why God can't use some of us? Because we're not big enough sinners yet in our eyes. You say, no, 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 you don't understand. I don't have any confidence. I know, but hold on. Maybe it's because you don't see yourself as a big enough sinner. Let me explain. Hold on. I wouldn't say that unless I had some scripture. You know that, right? Because now I'm going to get you. (laughs) 
Luke chapter 7. Let's look there. This is one of those not politically correct ones. This is one of those places in Scripture, passages in the Word that don't always reflect positively on us. And so if we could help it, we might want to bury it. But being good Bible believers, we don't. We just don't go over it too often. Luke chapter 7, verse 37. And behold, a woman in the city, which was a sinner, when she knew that Jesus sat at meat in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster box of ointment, stood at his feet behind him weeping and began to wash his feet with tears and did wipe them with the hairs of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. Now when the Pharisees which had bidden him saw it, he spake within himself saying, This man, if he were a prophet, would have known who and what manner of woman this is that toucheth him, for she's a sinner. Jesus, he knew. Just like he knew that man's thoughts, he knows mine and he knows yours. Don't ever forget that. See, when you say something to me, I say something to you. God hears exactly what I mean. And exactly what you mean. When I say, love you, praying for you. God knows what I really meant. Watch it now. See, this Pharisee was a godly man too. Honestly, if you and I were placed side by side with this man, none of us would come close to his level of separation. None of us would be as faithful and consistent as he was to his faith and religion. None of us would measure up to his outward Righteousness. And yet, the Lord knew exactly what he was thinking. Verse 39. This man, if he were a prophet, would have known who and what manner of woman this is that toucheth him. She's a sinner. Jesus goes on to say, verse 40. Simon... I have somewhat to say unto thee. He said, Master, say on. You ain't going to like it. Simon's like, go ahead. Us holy ones are here. Let's hear it, Lord. He says, there was a certain creditor which had two debtors. The one owed 500 pence. The other 50. Now, we can, uh, we can certainly understand right now without understanding even the pence. There's one that owes, is owed 500. There's another creditor that's owed 50. One much more than the other. <clears throat> Verse 42. <clears throat> and when they had nothing to pay, he frankly forgave them both. One owed him 50. The other 500 Ten times as much. Tell me, therefore, Jesus says, which of them will love him most? Simon answered and said, I suppose 
No, Simon, you don't suppose you know, but you don't want to say it. I suppose that he to whom he forgave most, and he said unto him, Thou hast rightly judged. First of all, notice that Simon judged. Simon saw. He was able to distinguish which one would love the Lord most based on, uh, should I say, which one would love the Lord most based on which one was forgave the most. So what he's saying is, if you are forgiven more, you will love more. Simon even knew this, and he was a Pharisee. He was a hypocrite, but he knew the truth. In our crowd today, there's a number, a score of faces, most of which I cannot see. But God can. My question is, how much do you love him? You say, oh, I love the Lord. I know, but hold on. Let's change the question then. Because they're directly interrelated. How forgiven do you feel? How much of a sinner are you? See, the bigger sinner that you were, and the more you feel forgiven, will determine how much you love him. That's what he's telling us. Do you feel you were forgiven a lot? Some of these young people, you know why you struggle and why you run off into the world when you get a chance? You don't feel forgiven much. I got saved as a kid. I wasn't doing anything bad. I was a good person. I never got, I mean, I wasn't taking drugs. I wasn't in immorality. I wasn't doing all those things. I wasn't really forgiven that much. Jesus didn't do that much for me. Okay, he saved me, yeah, but he, you know, come on. I mean, I love him and all, but you don't feel forgiven a whole lot. You know, as some of these folks out here that have been through life and have made horrendous mistakes with their life, have sinned against the Lord in a great way. You know why they're so faithful and consistent many times? Because every time they look back on their life, they say, man, God forgave me of so much. How in the world could I spit in his face? How could I treat him like that? After everything God's done for me, after he forgave all my sin, I'm such a wicked sinner. How in the world could I ever turn my back on Jesus and love me so much? I guess that's the fear that I have for second generation Christians. Too often they don't feel forgiven a whole lot. They're the 50 pence in most cases. But let me tell you something. I don't care if you were born into the best Christian family in the world. It took as much the blood of Christ to save you, forgive you, as the most vile, wretched sinner in the world. You were forgiven much. But until you figure that out, you will not love much. God chooses the biggest sinners. You say, but you don't know what I've done in my life and where I've been, preacher. God certainly couldn't use me in that kind of way. There's no way in the world He'd call me to teach her. No way He'd call me to be a bus captain. No way He'd call me into the ministry. I've had some real bad things in my life. I'm going to tell you something. God uses and calls the biggest sinners. Because those are the ones that usually love him the most. And finally, with Paul we learn this. God chooses the most unlikely. 
In Acts chapter 9, verse 13, then Ananias, of course, he's told to go get Paul, right? Or Saul at the time. Lord, I've heard of, by many of this man how much evil he hath done to thy saints at Jerusalem. And I heard, he's got a reputation. And here he hath authority from the chief priest to bind all that call on thy name. But the Lord said unto him, Go thy way, for he is a chosen vessel unto me to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. Boy, Saul was not a likely candidate for the call of God. He was on his way to literally destroy the faith. To separate husbands and wives, to drag daddy into prison and watch the children starve. And he certainly had no, no concern whatsoever, no remorse even for what he did. No, he was good at what he did and he certainly wasn't a likely candidate for the call of God. And may I say, you may not look like one tonight or even feel like one. Maybe tonight, after the service, you're thinking about running out and getting a beer. Or going to a bar this evening. You're thinking about heading down the street and involving yourself in pornography or being involved in immorality. Or maybe you're going to watch things that you know right off the top of your head. already know you shouldn't, but you're going to when you leave this place. Let me tell you something. Maybe you'll be on the way out when God gives you the call. That's where Saul was headed. He was headed out to kill people. Christians. You say, wait a second, if somebody was going to do those things, God would never call them. You don't know that. I saw an example of it right here in the Bible, chapter 9. Hold on a second. Remember what the title of the message is. The choice is yours. See, it doesn't matter where you're at. You may not feel like you deserve the call of God, and you may feel like you have no confidence, and you're certainly not the one that ought to be called. But let me tell you, God's not looking at those kind of things. God says, I'm going to give the call, and if you'll only accept it, then I'll be with you. And you can do miracles in my name. In every case, God used those who both heard and heeded the call. You ever hear these preachers that some of them will say things like, I got saved, and the very night I got saved, I got called to preach. And you're thinking, I mean, some people think, yeah, whatever. What happened? Right. Yeah, but he's a wicked sinner. Those are the ones God uses. Let me tell you something. According to 1 Corinthians, as we, we read that passage, when we look at the passage, I mean, we really consider it, and it says, For you see your calling, brethren, how that not many wise men after the flesh, nor many mighty, nor many noble are called, but God hath chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise, and God hath chosen the weak things of the world to confound the things that are mighty, and base things of the world, and things which are despised hath God chosen, yea, and things which are not to bring to naught things that are, that no flesh... Should glory in his presence. David said yes. Moses said yes. Paul said yes. God isn't looking for the biggest, the brightest, and the best tonight. He's looking for the weak, the weary, and the worried. 
And when it's all said and done, the only ones that answer the call are the willing. Those that say yes. Tonight, there's no reason why none of us, or says there's no reason why all of us can't be used. Why all of us can't obey the call. See, the choice is yours. Father, we come to you. We thank you again for the just the encouragement you give us, Lord, realizing and recognizing, Lord, that you're not looking for all stars. You're just looking for willing, just those that are available. Lord, thank you for allowing me to have the opportunity to do what I do in this life. I never, ever felt worthy of it. I felt, Lord, so unworthy. And yet, Lord, you so gracious. And for each and every one that's represented here, Lord, may we be open to your leadership. May we never doubt that you can use us. May we just be willing to say yes tonight. Say yes. Or maybe there's a a man in our group tonight that feels the call of God on their life. It feels as though God would have them give their life to winning souls and building others in the faith. Or maybe there's a man that's even headed out the door and knows in their heart they're going to do some things they shouldn't do tonight. But you're speaking to them. You're calling them. Lord, may they just say no to the flesh and yes to you tonight and answer that call in the affirmative. Maybe there's a young lady or an older lady, Father, that is hearing your voice. Lord, may they say yes tonight. May they not allow the devil to tell them that they're not valuable or that they're unworthy or that they're, in, they're, they're not able to accomplish what you call them to do. Lord, may they not buy into that lie, Lord. You just want them to say yes tonight because you use people just like us. Thank you, Lord, for your word and thank you for your promises. In Christ's name, amen. Let's all stand.